Okay, we're gonna we've starting the Psalter once again. We finished it today. We're starting it today. You know, this is the Word of God. We stay in it. This is where our priority lies. Psalm one: Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law in his law he meditates day and night. People. In his law, he meditates day and night. Do it. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall also not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. You thinking about starting a new direction in life, a new business, getting married, having a child? Meditate on the word of God, and you shall prosper. Okay? That's where our hope and our... Uh, uh, our focus should be is in what God has revealed of himself and what he promises. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Thank you, Lord. Oh, we got to read uh, our sermon text today. But before I do, I want to make two quick announcements. The first is that uh, Sarah has to leave at 12. So if she gets up, I told her, make sure you stand up and say, I can't take it anymore and run out. <laughs> so she has to leave at 12. Um, and along with that, we have a guest that she's bringing on 23 July. Can I announce this? 24 July, yeah. Sunday, 24 July. His name is Dave. Okay, I want you to pray for Dave before he comes because this man needs the Lord. I've prayed for him every single day for the past five years or four years, whenever your mother introduced me to him. And uh, he needs the Lord, and he is willing to come to church on the anniversary of Sarah's death. So I, I would ask that you would pray. Be friendly to him. What? Oh, Sarah, I'm sorry. Thank you, Sarah. Sarah. I, Sarah, they look so, I told her this before, when I look at her, they're so, and when she got rid of that blonde hair, that sealed it. I see Sarah, or, or Kelly, in Sarah. So anyway, um, we want to make sure that we treat him very well, hug him, let him know he's loved, and I, I just would like to know that he understands that there is grace at the throne of Jesus Christ, and it can be displayed through us, okay? So, uh, yes, sir? I have heard, and I don't think this is true, that nobody has ever come to the Lord without somebody else praying for them. There you go. That's, let's let's uh, all pray for him, okay? And then secondly, very quickly, Darla Gatz, I need you to come up here. I, I, I must have you come up here. All right, I'm going to explain. While she's getting up here, I'm going to explain what I'm doing. We had uh, a plan on Monday, which was her birthday. Come on up. We had a plan to uh, uh, get her something for her birthday at her house. And I didn't know what happened. Hedico, somebody went, they obviously needed a hubcap that she has on her car. And so they um, went to Hedico's car in the middle of the night and they pulled on the hubcap and they broke the hubcap because they're bolted on and it punctured her tire. Well, she didn't know that and she drove all the way to work with a flat tire. Oh you know, anyway, so um, she came home and she said, I never had time to go to Darla and uh, uh, give her uh, something for her birthday because she was going to do it that afternoon. So I wanted to recognize Darla on her birthday. Come over here so I can... Uh, come here. Uh, this is... I picked it out, so if you don't like it, it's my fault. This is a Persian uh, violet. The guy at uh, the store told me this is what I should get because low sun in the morning, no full sun in the afternoon. You know, the morning sun is okay. And he said, just give it a little bit of water and it, it'll last a long is time. It inside? It's inside, but yeah, just keep it uh, low sun and... Uh, Happy birthday balloon for you. And I need a hug. Thank and you. the people have to see you. So, mm, okay. 
That's that's from us. Happy birthday. If, and she didn't post on Facebook that it was her birthday. So unless Hidako knew that, I can't be responsible for rejecting people's birthday here. If you don't tell me, it's not my fault. And if I don't wish you a happy birthday, I'll give you a, a Persian violet. It's because you didn't tell me. Okay? I'm not really good with these things, and I need reminders. But um, Darla is the one that does the music ministry for the church. Every day she posts a song on the, the website, and uh, it, it's wonderful. I listen. To, that's the first thing I do. After reading the Bible every day, after reading that, I listen to her song. So... Thank you, Darla. Um, happy birthday to you. And uh, now that we are going to ex uh, Exodus 29, verses 1 through 14. This is entitled, The Consecration of Aaron and His Sons, Part 1. All right, uh, verse, uh, chapter 29, verse 1. And this is what you shall do to minister, to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. <laughs> Excuse me. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put one, them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and you shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on his turban, and you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. You shall consecrate Aaron and his sons." Verse 10, you shall have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. And then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. You shall make some of the blood of the bull, take some of the blood of the bull, and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and pour all the blood beside the base of the altar. And you shall take all of the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. But the flesh... Of the bull, with its skin and its offal, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Anybody seeing Jesus in that one? Okay, here we go. Towards the end of chapter 28, the Lord told Moses the purpose of the special garments which were made for Aaron and his sons. In verse 41, he said, So you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. The covenant was cut, the law was confirmed, and the place where the law would be administered has been described. Further, the instruction for making the garments of those who would administer the law has been given. Every detail is ultimately pointed to the work of Christ. And so, before going on, it needs to be noted that if each of these things which has been given to administer the law point to Christ then in Christ's coming, they are no longer needed. The ark and its mercy seat, the table of showbread, the menorah, the tabernacle and the tent, the courtyard, each pillar and socket, all of it. If Christ fulfilled these pictures, as we've seen that he has in all of those details, then the items are no longer needed. And if there is no longer a need for an ark or a mercy seat or a temple to contain them, then the law which these things detailed is no longer in effect. One cannot have a law without one to minister the law. And one cannot have a minister of the law if there's no place to minister. This should be as clear as crystal to Christians. And yet the heresy of reinstating the law into our theology never ceases to raise its ugly head. 
And so even before looking at the consecration of Aaron and his sons for the priesthood of the law, let us remember this truth. The law and every single thing associated with it only pointed to Christ, including this priesthood. The author of Hebrews explains this in Hebrews 7, verses 12 and 13, which is our text verse for today. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. Let us never lose sight of this fundamental truth as we now turn to the establishment of the Aaronic priesthood, a priesthood which only remained in effect until it was superseded by the work of Christ, our true high priest, who descends not from Aaron, but from Judah. This is why the author of Hebrews almost immediately follows up with the words that tell us that the law of Moses is annulled because of its weakness and its unprofitableness. The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, in Christ, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we can now draw near to God. In Christ, we have a new priesthood, an eternal one, which is superior to the law in all ways. We have a mediator who is without sin and who will never fail us. Let us remember this truth as we look at the establishment of the Aaronic priesthood, these fallible men administering a law of bondage and death. However, it is a necessary part of the redemptive story. By seeing the failings of this priesthood, the glory of Christ's priesthood stands out all the more radiantly. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is the investiture of Aaron and his sons. It's verses one through nine. Verse one, and this is what you shall do to hallow them. As I said, at the end of chapter 28, Moses was given instructions to anoint, consecrate, and sanctify Aaron and his sons. We will now be given the specific process by which this was to be accomplished. In Leviticus 8, the actual rites which are prescribed here will be carried out. The word translated here as hallow means to sanctify. It is what is required in order to set them apart for their duties. Five things will be accomplished in order to sanctify them. The first is washing. This is found in verse 4. The next will be investiture of them with the garments of the priesthood. This will be seen in verses 5 through 9. After this will come the anointing mentioned in verse 7. After that will be the sacrifices of the bull and the rams. This is recorded in verses 10 through 23. And finally will be the filling of the hand as is recorded in verse 24. This filling will be for the purpose of a wave offering. Charles Ellicott notes the purpose of these five acts. He says, all of these were symbolical acts typical of things spiritual. Ablution of the putting away of impurity. Investiture of being clothed with holiness. Unction of the giving of divine grace. And so on. The entire consecration forming an acted parable. Very suggestive and full of instruction to such as understood its meaning. Here in verse 1, the offerings are mentioned first. The pulpit commentary says this is because it was to have them in readiness when the investiture and anointing were over. That's absolutely incorrect. Moses is still on the mountain and only receiving instructions. He isn't actually there doing anything. He's not ready to do the prescribed tasks. The same thing here is happening as that which occurred when the mentioning of such things at other times came about, like the ark and the mercy seat being mentioned first before all of the other furniture. The thing which sanctifies is mentioned first. 
In the case of animals, it is their shed blood, which will be used to cover the sins of Aaron and his sons. For this reason, the bull and the rams are named first. Each step of the process is showing us the holiness of God and the need for atonement, even for the high priestly line. Verse 1 continues, For ministering to me as priests. It should be understood that these things were required, and they were what allowed Aaron and his sons to minister to the Lord, but they did not make them perfect. This will be seen throughout the history of Israel under the law. Further, when the high priest sacrificed for Israel each year on the Day of Atonement, he first had to sacrifice for his own sins. Therefore, the Aaronic priesthood is one of imperfection, but established by grace and with mercy. Were this not given, these men would be unacceptable as priests to the Lord. Verse 1 continues, Take one young bull and two rams without blemish. The first portion of the hallowing process is to take one young bull. The word is par. It comes from parar, which means to defeat. Par means a bullock because it breaks forth in wild strength. It may also have a reference to the dividing of the hoof. They were also instructed to take two rams. The ram is ayil. This comes from ul, which means mighty. Therefore, it indicates strength or anything strong. In the case of a ram, it is the strong animal of the flock. Those selected are to be without blemish. The Hebrew word is tamim, which means blameless or perfect. It was first used in the Bible to describe Noah back in Genesis 6 verse 9. Later, the Lord told Abraham to walk before me and be tamim or be blameless. It is also the word used to describe the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. Now, for the fourth time in the Bible, it is used to indicate the animals which are to be sacrificed in place of Aaron and his sons. Verse 2, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil, you shall make them of wheat flour. Meal offerings are next mentioned. They are a bloodless offering, but each is specifically noted as being unleavened. Leaven or yeast in the Bible, as we've seen countless times, pictures sin. Just as bread puffs up when it's leavened, man puffs up in pride, in arrogance, or in wickedness through sin. It is also something that causes corruption, just as sin is what causes corruption in man. The first bread is simply lechem, or bread. We will see in verse 23 that this is a round loaf of bread. The circle in the Bible signifies that which is divine or eternal. It has no beginning. It has no end. The second bread is challah, a new word introduced into the Bible. It comes from halal, meaning to pierce. Therefore, it is pierced or punctured cakes. These cakes were to be mixed with oil. The third is another new type of bread, rakik. This comes from the word rakak, which means to spit, as in <coughs> spitting. So it is a thin cake, like a wafer. These wafers were to be smeared with oil. Each of these was to be made of solet chitim, or fine wheat flour. The word chita, or wheat, comes from the word chanat, which means to make spicy, or to embalm, or to ripen. The flour, or Solet comes from an unused root meaning to strip, thus it is fine flour. It has only been used once so far in the Bible, which was at the time of Abraham. When the Lord appeared to him on the way to destroying Sodom, we read these words. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three fine, three measures of fine meal, that word right there, knead it and make cakes. We will see that these will all be waved before the Lord. It was to be an acknowledgment that bread is what sustains the body and that mercy, which allows man to be acceptable 
before God comes solely by an act of grace. Verse three, you shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. It's always curious to come to a verse like this. One must ask why the Lord is so specific about them bringing one, these types of three types of bread in one basket, salachad. Why would he do that? Is it entirely necessary? Couldn't he have just said, bring them in a basket or bring them along with these animals? And yet there is great specificity, which asks us to stop and to consider why one basket is specified. The sal or basket comes from the word salal, which means to build. Thus, it indicates a basket which is built up through the weaving process, specifically with the type of willow branch. Verse four, and Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. The translation is incorrect. We saw this last week. It is the tent of meeting, not the tabernacle of meeting. The word is ohel, signifying a tent, not mishkan, which would be the tabernacle itself. At this door of the tent, an item which is not yet described, known as the bronze laver, is going to be placed. That will have a specific purpose in the rituals that the priests will conduct as they minister to the Lord. Verse 4 continues, And you shall wash them with water. As part of the ordination process, Moses was to wash Aaron and his sons with water. This implies an entire washing of their bodies. At this strategic place, just between where the people were allowed to come and the entrance to the place where the Lord dwelt, they were to be prepared for being acceptable to enter into his presence. The people would be witnesses of this part of the process, and it was intended to allow them to see that they remained unclean and unacceptable to enter where their king was. Only those chosen and properly prepared could do so. After this washing of their bodies, the labor is going to be used differently in the future. This is seen in Exodus 30 with these words. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base, also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. Each step they are being progressively instructed in the holiness of God and the need to be pure and undefiled as they approached him on behalf of the people. Verse 5, then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod, the ephod in the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. Two of the things previously described, the sash and the urim and thummim, are not mentioned here. Also, the order here for two of the pieces of clothing has been inverted. When the clothing of them is actually done in Leviticus chapter 8, the missing items will be mentioned and the two inverted items will be noted in the right order. For now, only the basic instructions are given. These instructions now are not in error, but they are noted according to what the Lord determines is needed in order for Moses to clearly understand what is expected in the ordination process. You should remember now that the clothing of Aaron and his sons only occurs after their washing. However, the continued washing of their hands and feet in the regular discharge of their duties occurs after they are clothed. Why is this something that we should remember? It's because you will be given a test on it at the end of this sermon to see if you do remember. Verse 6, you shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. 
The turban is what is to adorn Aaron's head, and the holy crown is to adorn the turban. The holy crown is the plate of pure gold mentioned first in verse 2836. Here it is called Netzer HaKodesh, or crown the holy. The word Netzer is introduced here. It comes from Nazar, which means to consecrate. It indicates something set apart and includes the idea of the Nazarite who is found in Numbers chapter 6. There is to be a separation noted between Aaron and all others, highlighted by this marvelous holy crown. Verse 7, And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. The anointing oil was first mentioned in Exodus 25, verse 6, but its specific makeup will not be explained until chapter 30. And when we get there, it is so exciting, those details. I just can't wait to give them. Again, this is not out of order, but rather the use being given before the makeup of the substance follows logically along with the other prioritized items so far. This special anointing oil will be used to anoint Aaron, his sons, the tabernacle, along with everything in it. As far as the means of anointing Aaron, it was poured or smeared on his head in an extravagant amount. His sons, however, would simply be sprinkled with this oil. The anointing of Aaron was remembered by David in a most vivid way in the 133rd Psalm. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down to the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Verse 8, then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. The clothing of the sons is intended to set them apart for their priestly duties. Though not in the mediatorial role of Aaron, the sons are consecrated to perform the necessary services required for the care of the people of Israel. They are also set apart for the care of the items in the holy place of the tabernacle. Verse 9, and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The second and third of the three designations of the priestly officer noted here. They were to be girded with sashes and have the hats placed on their heads. These three items, then, are the standard dress expected of the priests as they ministered for the people before the Lord. Verse 9 going on, the priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. In these words, confusion can arise unless one understands what the Lord means. The priesthood will last only as long as the law lasts. If the law is annulled, then the priesthood ends with the annulling of the law. When the Messiah came, who fulfilled all of the types and shadows of the law, and who also fulfilled living out the law, then the law was set aside and that priesthood ended. The word for perpetual here is olam. It means the vanishing point. It can mean the idea of eternity, but in this case, in the case of the law, it is not to be so understood. The law would serve its purpose, and as long as it was in effect, the priesthood would belong to the line of Aaron. Verse 9 continues, so you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. Umileta yad ad aharon veyad banav. Literally, and you shall fill the hand of Aaron and the hand of his sons. In the ordination and consecration of Aaron and his sons, they would be set apart as acceptable concerning the offerings which filled their hands from the people and to the Lord. Thus the term fill the hand indicates their acceptability and thus their consecration. Clothed in righteousness, adorned in white, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, now our garments are pure, clean and bright, saved forever by the great I Am. We are now priests unto the Most High God. We have been brought new unto Him by the blood of the Lamb. 
forever and ever, golden streets we will trod, saved forever by the great I am. Throughout the ages we will serve the eternal king, subjects of his kingdom because of the blood of the lamb. For endless, ceaseless ages to him we shall sing, saved forever by the great I am. Our second thought today is slaying the, the slaying of the bull. Verses 10 through 14. Verse 10, you shall have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the bull. The King James Version says, thou shalt cause a bullock to be brought. It is not a bull, but rather the bull mentioned in verse one. There is a definite article in front of it. It was to be set apart because it was without blemish. The King James Version confuses this and it diminishes the importance of what is being said. This bull, without any blemish, was to be brought to the door of the tent, not the tabernacle. I want to keep highlighting that to you so you know the the words when they're incorrectly translated. There before the tent, they were to place their hands on the bull's head. In this is symbolically a transfer of the sin and imperfection of the men to the bull. In this act, the bull takes the curse which they deserve for their sins, and it is transferred to that bull. As the animal is accursed, it must die. Thus, we have what is known as a vicarious substitute. The sin is symbolically removed from the one, and it is transferred to the other. Therefore, one life is given in the place of another. Verse 11, then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. It is Moses who is instructed to kill the bull. He will act as the priest pro tempore until Aaron and his sons are fully consecrated as priests. In this verse, we see something which occurs from time to time. Instead of saying, kill the bull before me, it says, kill the bull before the Lord. The words are intended to be fulfilled in the future, at a specific time and in a specific place. Therefore, even though he is speaking about having this accomplished in his own presence, he still uses the formal term before the Lord. As a way of understanding this, it would be maybe the president saying to a person on a mission, you are to go get this document and bring it directly to the office of the president. The matter is so important that the stress is laid on the position rather than the person. In the case of the Lord, as he is both position and person, he uses the formal term before the Lord. Verse 12, you shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. Once the bull was bled out, it would be a confirmation of the death of the animal for the life is in the blood according to Leviticus 17, verse 11. With this proof of the death of the substitute, then some of its blood was to be put on the horns of the altar with his finger. The horns, or carnot, of the altar are the place of mercy and safe refuge. We saw that in a previous sermon. Further, horns are a symbol of strength. For the blood to be placed on them signified the granting of mercy and the allowance of safety from the wrath which had been transferred to the bull. As there are four horns pointing to the four corners of the earth, it further symbolizes the power of the act to fully save and cleanse the sinner. David understood this when he wrote these words in the 18th Psalm. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Another point is that Moses is specifically told to apply the blood with his finger. The word etzba, or finger, has only been used one time so far in Scripture. That was in Exodus 8, verse 19, when the magicians of Pharaoh ascribed the plague of lice to the finger of God. The word etzba comes from another word, tseba, which indicates dyed material, and thus one gets the idea of grasping something. 
Therefore, the finger is that which accomplishes a task. The creation is said to be the work of the Lord's fingers in the eighth psalm. Thus, in this verse, the mercy, the refuge, and the remission of the sins is granted by God, but it is accomplished by the work of the mediator's fingers. Verse 12 continues, and pour all the blood beside the base of the altar. After the proof of death has been testified to on the horns of the altar, the rest of the blood was to be poured out at the base of the altar. This signifies the complete removal of the life force which bore the sins of Aaron and his sons. Verse 13, and you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. As new words come into the Bible, I always try to highlight them to you. In this verse are three new words, the yotoret, or lobe, the kabed, or liver, and the kilya, or kidneys. Now one must wonder why these particular parts of the animal were to be burnt on the altar. You've got to say, why would he ask for that? Well, the reason why is because the fat around the entrails signifies the health of life, its abundance. This is seen, for example, from David in the 63rd Psalm. He says, my soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. The liver signifies the seat of emotions in the Bible, where feeling comes from. It is used synonymously with disposition and character. In Lamentations, Jeremiah says, My eyes fail with tears. My bowels are troubled. My liver is poured upon the earth for the destruction of the daughter of my people because the children and the sucklings faint in the streets of the city. The kidneys position within the body makes them almost inaccessible. When an animal is cut up, they will be the last organs which are reached. And because of this, the kidneys symbolize the hidden parts of man and thus the mind. These then were to be offered to the Lord because they symbolized those most intimate aspects of the person. They are the very substance of who he is. The life of the animal was given in exchange for the sins of these men. Therefore, these attributes of theirs were being offered to him in fire on the altar. In fact, the word for burn here is katar. It's a new word in the Bible, and it gives the idea of the smoke of incense. It is the act of turning something into fragrance by fire. These parts of the animal, signifying the most intimate aspects of the person, were to become as incense to the Lord. Verse 14, But the flesh of the bull with its skin and its offal you shall burn with fire outside the camp. The rest of the entire animal was to be taken outside the camp and burned with fire. Nothing of it was to remain, and none of it was to be eaten. The animal was under a curse, and thus to eat it would be symbolic of taking the sin back into oneself. Instead, it was to be returned to the old order of things where sin remained. In its place, those for whom the animal died would be reckoned under the new order of things. They would be new men with a new nature, cleansed from their defilement before the Lord. One new word in this verse is peresh, meaning dung. It is translated here as awful, and dung is usually pretty awful. <laughs> it is what passes through. The entire animal, including what was inside of it, was to be wholly burnt outside of the camp. Verse 14 finishes with, it is a sin offering. These last words of the day show us the imperfection of the Aaronic priesthood. Because these were fallible men who required sacrifices for themselves before they could sacrifice for the people, the priesthood could not endure forever. It could only do so until it was replaced by the one who would be perfect and without a need for sacrificing for his own sins. Only then could man be truly purified of the stain of sin which had clung steadfastly to him since the fall of his first father. 
The bull is slain, his blood is poured out. The proof of the death is evident in the bowl of blood. But for that bull, don't shed a tear or pout. Sin is atoned for by the crimson flood. There, on the cross of Calvary, hangs a man. For the sins of mankind was shed his blood. We ask, can it truly atone for sin? God says, yes, it can. And so we plunge ourselves neath that crimson flood. And through his death, our high priest, he came to be when he went behind the veil and presented his blood. He did this because of God's love for you and for me. And so let us tell the world of that marvelous crimson flood. Our third thought today is pictures of Christ. Again, as we do each week, it's time to look at the verses today and what they actually picture in relation to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The meal offering consisted of three things, unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. All of them were to be made of wheat flour. These point to three aspects of Christ's life and ministry. Bread is symbolic of life, the word and provision which sustains man, among other things. The lechem, or bread, is simply the normal term for bread. It was to be made without leaven and thus symbolizes life without sin. It is thus a picture of Christ, the sinless man who is the word of God, our life and our provision. As I said earlier, though, it is round bread. Thus, it also signifies the divine eternality of Christ. As it says of him in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The second is the unleavened cakes mixed with oil. That cake is known as halal, which comes from halal, meaning to pierce. Thus, this bread pictures Christ's work as the one who was pierced to give us life. This bread was to be mixed with shemen, or oil. Oil signifies several things in the Bible, such as joy, prosperity, and so forth. However, its preeminent signification is that of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the work of the Spirit is mixed into the piercing of Christ. The two are not disconnected, but they are intricately enmeshed together. The third type of bread is rakik. As I said, it comes from rakak, which means to spit. So it's a thin cake like a wafer. These wafers were to be smeared with oil. In Leviticus 15, verse 8, it notes that if a person defiled by a discharge were to spit rakak on a person, it would make them unclean. This bread then pictures Christ's passion when he was spit on and beat by the unclean Gentiles, as is stated in Luke, verse 18. This was prophesied in Isaiah using the word rok, which comes from rakak. I give my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. However, this bread is said to have been anointed with oil. The word is mashach. It is the same word used to identify the coming Messiah in Isaiah 61 verse 1 where it says this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed mashach me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to opening of the prison to those who are bound. Thus, this third type of bread with its oil also pictures Christ as the one anointed to fulfill the messianic pictures presented in the Old Testament. Each type of bread was to be made of solet chitim, or fine wheat flour. Chita, or wheat, as I said, is the finest of biblical grains. The word comes from chanat, which means to make spicy, or to embalm, or to ripen. When the wheat is ripened, it is valuable as food and as seed for more wheat. Through Christ's ministry, a harvest of wheat is realized. He spoke of this in John 12, verses 23 through 26. He says this, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates this life in the world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. The fine wheat flour is a picture of his unchanging character and purity. After these were specified, the Lord told Moses that all three of the breads were to be brought before him in one basket. The three loaves in the single basket indicate three different aspects of Christ's single ministry. He is the bread of life. He is the one pierced for our transgressions, and he is the one who brings about our salvation and the growth and great harvest of his church. And yet there is great specificity which asks us to stop and consider why one basket? Why? The sal or basket, as I said, comes from the word salal, which means to build. It indicates a basket which is built up through the weaving process. Thus, it is through these various aspects of Christ and his ministry that it's built up and it's embodied. This aspect of his work can be summed up by the words of Hebrews 2, verse 10, which says, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. After this, the washing and clothing of Aaron and his sons was mentioned. This was to be done at the door of the tent of meeting, where they were to be first washed with water. This pictures the total cleansing of the priests. In Aaron's case, as the high priest, it pictures Christ's perfect purity as our high priest. It points to his baptism before he entered into his public service in order to fulfill all righteousness. For the sons, it pictures those who follow Christ and are purified by his work, this is seen in John 13, where Christ said these words, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. In that passage, John uses two different words. One word indicates a full bathing, and the second indicates a lesser washing. Instead of the test that I promised, here is the meaning of that. Through Christ's work, we are completely cleaned. We stand justified and free of guilt. However, we also continue to go through a process of sanctification where we need to be purified from time to time. This is pictured in the priest's need to wash their hands and their feet as they minister to the Lord. These external washings signify the universal corruption of man and our need for external purification. The water pictures the spiritual regeneration which occurs when we are set apart by Christ. Only after the washing was accomplished were the garments then put on them. In the case of Aaron in his garments, it's emblematic of the divine work of Christ. In this passage, he has seven articles which are placed on him, each representing an aspect of his work, which we have seen very clearly in previous sermons. Together, they form a picture of Christ, the prophet, the priest, and the king, who is completely distinct and set apart from all others. After he was clothed, Moses then anointed Aaron. This is a picture which was already seen in the bread and which is repeated here. It is the anointing of the Holy Spirit on Christ, which was prophesied in Isaiah 61. It is also referred to by Peter in Acts 10.38, when he told Cornelius that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. In the case of the sons of Aaron, the symbolism again follows through to us, just as we saw last week. Three items were placed on them, tunics, sashes, and hats. The tunics picture our being clothed with his righteousness. The sashes picture our having girded our waists with his truth. 
the hats picture our having been granted a helmet of salvation upon our head because of the judgment named for Christ at Gabbatha, the name which bears the same root as that of the hats. As far as the terminology concerning the priesthood, that of Aaron and his line, it was to be as long as the law was in effect. However, for the priesthood which this only pictures, meaning Christ's perfect priesthood, Hebrews tells us of its duration. Hebrews chapter 7, also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, meaning Christ, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. The priesthood which Christ established and to which we belong is one which will span eternal ages. Finally, today we looked at the bull offering. The bull is an exacting picture of Christ. It is the sacrifice of the high priest which he made for his own sins every year on the day of atonement. As Christ had no sins of his own and thus needing no sacrifice, the bull pictures him as the perfect high priest. As the bull pictures Christ, then the symbolism is rather sobering. These men placed their hands on the bull in a symbolic act of transferring their corruption and their guilt to the bull. In Christ, we have transferred our corruption and our sin to him, the sinless son of God whom this bull pictures. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, for he who made, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The slaying of the bull symbolizes the death of Christ as our substitute. The bull was to be without blemish, symbolizing the perfect man, Jesus. The application of the bull's blood on the horns of the altar shows that Christ has brought all who come to him mercy and a place of refuge. The particular instructions that the blood was to be applied with the finger demonstrates the creative workings of God on our behalf. Jesus told the people of Israel that if he truly cast out demons with the finger of God, then surely the kingdom of God had come upon them. The application of the blood signifies Christ's exacting work for his redeemed. As I said earlier, the mercy, the refuge, and the remission of the sins is granted by God, but it results from the work of the mediator's fingers. As Jesus is fully God, the proof of his death in the shedding of his blood is completely sufficient to take away the sin guilt that we bear. The pouring out of the blood at the base of the altar pictures the full proof of Christ's death. He bled until the life had expired from his body. His blood was completely poured out. Despite this, the burning of the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them symbolizes the offering of the very essence of Christ to God. Paul explains it exactingly in Ephesians 5 with these words, And walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. You remember that word, fragrant aroma. The verse is ended today with the final disposal of the body of the bull. With the exception of those parts already mentioned, it was to be taken outside the camp and burned with fire. The author of Hebrews explains the symbolism very perfectly for us with these words. We have an altar from which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Here we are once again at the end of a passage which, upon a cursory reading, seems to have little other than historical value. And yet, it is a passage which is rich in significance because of what it shows us. The details are in the words, and the words reveal so very much. 
The law really existed, and it served its purpose, but the law also was given in types and shadows in order to show us the supremacy of what still lies ahead in Christ. In him, the law was annulled. In its place has come the most marvelous of priesthoods. It is an eternal one, and one which has the ability to perfect those who come to Christ through it. If you have trusted in earning God's favor through self, or if you're trying to earn God's favor through the deeds of an outdated law which could never save you, I would ask you to reconsider your stance. Christ's priesthood is superior to that of Aaron's in all ways. Take your sins, place them at the feet of the cross of Jesus, and be reconciled to God through what he has already done. Please allow me just one more moment to tell you just a few verses to make this simple and understandable for you. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's why we die. We have sin in us. Sin is corruption, and we eventually corrupt and we die. And I've asked this question from time to time is when somebody dies, what immediately happens to the body? Within minutes, it starts to corrupt, and it starts to stink. And within no time at all, it's completely vile. That is what sin is like to God. It's just the utter corruption of the body. And we're living in that corruption. We're animated physically, but we're already spiritually dead. We inherited that from our first father. And the wages of sin is death. But there's a worse death than the one that we're going to have in this physical body. It's the spiritual disconnection from God, which came at the very beginning when Adam died. From him, sin has always traveled from father to son. And so we all inherit death the moment that we're born. It's almost a, a paradox, but here we are physically alive and spiritually dead. The wages of sin is death. But the Bible says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are born dead. It's our wages. We've earned it. And yet God gives us a gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't deserve anything, but I'm offering you everything. God, in his infinite love, in his infinite mercy, and in his infinite goodness, says, I am going to offer you life if you will simply believe in what I did through my son on his cross. He died to take your sin. Remember that bull? I'm putting my hands on the bull. That bull is going to die because of your sin. I'm going to cut its neck. Out comes its blood. It's going to die. And that is what happened to Jesus Christ. His blood was poured out for you and for me. The precious blood of the lamb without, without spot or blemish the precious bull that did nothing wrong, and yet he died as the high priest of Israel. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's an absolute guarantee. God who cannot lie because he is absolute truth says that if you will simply believe what I have done for you, you will be saved and you will be granted eternal life. So I would ask you to do this today if you've never taken that moment that one moment in your life to say, I receive Jesus Christ. I accept his payment for my sin. God will take care of it for you. All right? Next week, we have uh, Exodus 29, 15 through 25. Wonderful things. The Bible will relate to you. It's entitled, The Consecration of Aaron and His Sons, Part 2. That'll be our 80th Exodus sermon. And I'd like to tell you that if anybody here has never been baptized scripturally, you get saved, and then you get baptized. We talked about that during the Prophecy Update. That's the logical order of things to do. Call me anytime. We can go out back of the house or go down to the beach, and we can dunk you right in, okay? That's saying, I want to be obedient to Christ by showing the world that I have become a follower of him. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. And even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters, and he can lead you through it on dry ground. 
So follow him and trust him, and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? One last thing today, and then we'll take the Lord's uh, Supper. Poem based on these verses. It's called The Consecration of Aaron and His Sons. And this is what you shall do to them, to hallow them for ministering as priests to me. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and continue to follow my directions explicitly. An unleavened bread mixed with oil, each unleavened cake and unleavened wafers anointed with oil, you shall them of wheat flour make. You shall put them in one basket and in the basket them you shall bring with the bull and the two rams. So you shall do this thing. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the tabernacle of meeting at the door and you shall wash them with water on them water you shall pour. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod too, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, so you shall do. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban, as I have said. And you shall the anointing oil take, pour it on his head and anoint him for the ordination's sake. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, so you shall do. And you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put hats on them too. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. In these things, the priesthood you will institute. You shall have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting, as I say. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. This they shall obey. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting, according to my word. You shall take some of the blood of the bull for sure, and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and all the blood beside the base of the altar pour. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, so you shall do, and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar as I now instruct to you. But the flesh of the bull with its skin and its offal, you shall do this thing. You shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for what you have done. You have made us a kingdom of priests to you, and it is only because of the work of your son. It is only because of what he alone did do. And so we thank you, and we give you praise. Yes, Lord God Almighty, we shall do so even unto eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the pictures which you've given us, which point to Christ and his work. And once again, we're in I don't know, our 79th Exodus sermon, and we've probably seen a hundred pictures of him in every sermon so far. Your word is simply calling out to us the obvious, and yet we turn our eyes from it, and we go back to strange rituals, and we go to heresies, and we go to anything except you. We're the most perverse group of people that could possibly be conceived, and yet you continue to reach out to us. You continue to send us your love and you continue to give us rain in its season. You give us love between each other. You give us joy in our hearts and we keep going away from you. Help us to turn to your word and to study it and to see this, that you are there calling out to us in Jesus' name and what he did. And then help us to make the right choice. Help us to make that right choice to pursue Jesus all the days of our life and to let the people, the redeemed of the Lord, say so. Help us to open our mouths and just tell others about this because the time is short. The time is short and we need to make the right decisions now. How good you are to us, oh God. How wonderful you are to us. Thank you for all you've done. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we'll get into the Lord's Supper, which is comes directly from Paul's hand, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
And there he writes these words. Now think about what we just looked at with the bowl and the offering and the substitute and everything that happened in that passage from, what, 3,500 years ago? Long before Christ came, they're acting out this parable, as Charles Ellicott noted. They're acting, or maybe it was John Lang. One of these guys said they're acting out a parable. It's all pointing to what Christ did. And here we're on the receiving end of it. We get the blessing of seeing what he did, and we also get the blessing of proclaiming his name until he comes again for us. May that day be soon. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How's your eye doing? The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the chance to come and take of the Lord's table. And we thank you for what it signifies, and we also thank you that it is a promise that Jesus Christ is coming again. We look forward to that day with eager anticipation. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We exalt you. Please take care of each person here and each person online that... Uh, is with us today. Bless them in the week ahead as only you know how to do and help them to remember as each blessing comes in to take a moment and to thank you. You are so good and you are so worthy of it. We exalt you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.